If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Mark this morning. Mark chapter 1. This past week, Mark Dever, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the founder of Nine Marks Ministries, offered what was probably a very controversial statement. Now, given the technological age in which we live, Dever himself did not exactly utter those words, but rather they were tweeted by a ministry that he was associated with. They quoted Dever as saying this, If you say, I follow Jesus, but you're not with others helping them to follow Jesus, I'm simply not sure what you mean. Dever's words were probably provocative for many because they cut across many misconceptions about the Christian life, specifically misconceptions that the Christian life is all about us as the individual. It's about my personal salvation. It's about my personal growth. And while the Christian faith certainly begins with an individual decision that requires personal faith, our lives as Christians is much bigger than that, is meant to be much larger than that. For when God calls us to salvation, He calls us also into the community of His people, people who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is very clear that those who are followers of Christ are meant to help others follow Him as well. To put it another way, every disciple is called to make disciples. Exploring this idea has been our focus together on Sunday mornings the last few weeks. On our first Sunday, we started off the series by looking at Jesus' mission and mindset for His own ministry. We saw Him as the great disciple maker Himself who came for sinners and wasn't afraid to be involved in their lives. He didn't just stand back and preach to people to come to him, but rather he went to sinners. Then Pastor Richard picked up the series and focused on the task of evangelism from Jesus' own words in John 4. He pointed out how Jesus intentionally approached a woman whose life was so steeped in sin that she was ostracized from her community. He showed her compassion and yet not at the expense of failing to address her sin. Both confrontation of sin and offering grace and salvation were part of Jesus' message of salvation. After that, Doug last week brought an exposition from Luke 10, looking at Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha. And from that passage, Doug drew out implications for what it means to encourage others in their faith as believers in Christ Jesus. He helped explain what it means to help a fellow believer, a fellow disciple, mature in Christ. Encouragement of a believer's faith is an essential, ongoing part of discipleship. But there's more. As we evangelize, then encourage, we must also equip people, Christ people, for ministry. And though we could subdivide those things down even further, these are the the three large components Uh, the the kind of hooks upon which we hang our thinking when it comes to the task of disciple-making, the ministry that every follower of Christ is called to. Evangelism, encouragement, and equipping. And it is this last part, this this idea of equipping, that it will be our focus today as we look to Mark chapter 1. What does it mean to be equipped? Quite simply, it means to be trained for ministry. And Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 4 that all of God's people are called to experience this kind of training for ministry, not just for themselves, but for the good of all Christ's people, for the good of the church collectively, they are to be equipped. But what does that look like? Practically speaking, what should we expect if we are to be equipped 
How should we ex expect to equip others? This is what we want to think about and consider and understand this morning. And once again, we look to Jesus as our focus is in this short series, as the master disciple maker. Of course, we look to him in faith for salvation. He is our savior. And as we will see later, we are saved by grace through faith alone. But Christ, after being our savior, is also our example. So I want to ask the question, what did it look like for Jesus to equip his disciples? And so we look at this, we want to see this from Mark 1. Please follow along as I begin reading at verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, there is much that we could draw out of this passage. There is much that Mark intends to say here, but we are narrowing our focus this morning to just pull out that thread of discipleship and what it looks like for Jesus to do that with these men. In this passage, Jesus' followers aren't actually called disciples, but just a few verses later in Mark's gospel, that's how they're identified by others. And that becomes then the constant word that Mark uses to describe the followers of Jesus in his gospel. They are identified as disciples. So when Jesus issues this call to follow him, that's what we'll see he is doing. He's issuing this call for them to be his disciples. And from this passage and many others in Mark, we will see that there is a certain kind of intimacy to that calling. This is the first thing that we need to understand from these verses this morning, the intimacy of discipleship, the intimacy of discipleship. One of the interesting things sitting in the background of this passage is the idea that this idea of discipleship was in no way limited to Jesus during his day. There were, in fact, many rabbis who had disciples during the, the first century uh, in much less formal ways. We even have that today. We even have a form of uh, disciple-making and teachers today uh, that's even beyond the local church. Just the other day, um, in fact, while I was in India, I was talking to a young guy who was uh, just beginning his seminary education, and I told him uh, an important, what I at least found to be an important bit of advice that I was told while I was in seminary, and that was this, don't just pick classes, pick professors. Don't just look at, the, at what's coming up. Uh, think about who is teaching those classes. Find those professors, those men that you believe exhibit a certain godliness of life and have a clear command of the scripture's teaching, then take all the classes that you can with them. Allow them to, over the course of your time there, invest in your life. That's a very casual form of discipleship. But in Jesus' day, things were, were not so casual. They were very different. Men who wanted to study under a specific rabbi would actually approach them and ask permission to follow them. Uh, to be their disciples. And in that way, a disciple was a learner, a student. And there was a special kind of relationship there. There was a specific kind of relationship there. But Jesus, we see in the Gospels, takes things to a different level. 
He doesn't wait for people to approach him. He goes and calls people to himself. Jesus says to these men, follow me. He, he is going after them and claiming disciples for himself. Now, we know already from John's gospel that these disciples were already familiar with Jesus and his ministry. And Mark actually gives us a little indicator of that by telling us that this happened after John was arrested. So when you lay the gospels together and you think of your chronology, Jesus has been baptized for about a year. Uh, we see him in the opening chapters of John's gospel uh, performing a miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding. We see him having a conversation with a religious man, Nicodemus. We see him as, as Pastor Richard walked us through meeting a woman at the well. And all of that is before this moment. There are these men traveling with him. They're having interaction with them. They're not with him all the time. They're still doing their jobs, but they would take little trips. They're observing him. And now... Jesus begins his formal preaching ministry. He says, verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, all men everywhere should repent and believe in the gospel. <coughs> Jesus is preaching that message and now he approaches these men. And he says, it's time for you to make a commitment. It's time for you to decide what you're going to do with your life. They've had exposure to him. They, they, they've had the ability to kind of get to know him. And now he says, follow me. And it's not a kind of try it out for a while thing. This is a call to discipleship. He calls them not just to study with him, but to be with him, to, to travel long term, to learn from him, to live with him, ultimately to follow him in such a way that he becomes the most important priority in their life. Now, Mark's primary purpose in writing his gospel is to show his readers that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. You see that in the very first verse, all the way down to the verses we're looking at this morning. That is, that is what he is trying to accomplish with this book. But around that purpose is another cluster of smaller intentions, topics, and ideas that he also wants to convey. And one of those is the nature of discipleship. What does it mean when Jesus says, follow me, and we answer that call and we follow him. It starts here and it goes out from here. Martin only gives us Jesus' teaching on discipleship. Here's what it means to follow me, like take up your cross and follow after me. But he also gives us snapshots of what life was like for the disciples of Jesus. And here what he gives us is a picture of the intimacy of discipleship. Mark describes discipleship in several ways. First of all, as being with Jesus as being with Jesus. There is a relationship there that goes just beyond a formal classroom setting. Being with him is part of discipleship. But it's not less than a teaching relationship either. Mark describes being a disciple of Jesus as sitting around with Jesus, sitting around him and hearing him, hearing Jesus. The point is that he has become the focal point of their lives. Their lives are in fact centered around him as they are listening to his voice, they are hearing his teaching, they are believing, and they are obeying. Most important of all for Mark, discipleship means following Jesus on the way to the cross. Following Jesus on the way to the cross. Though it is essential to, as we said earlier, trust in Jesus' saving work on the cross, the unique saving work on the cross, we are called to follow his example as well, to take up our own cross, that is to take up a sense of self-denial and to live not for ourselves, but for him. Now, what's the point of all this? The point is that discipleship can never be reduced to what takes place in a classroom. It's so much more than that. 
It doesn't mean that it's, le- that it's less than that, that it's not involved, but it's so much more than that. It is more intimate than that. It's about being a part of someone's life, to being intertwined with them in a significant and intimate way. Several years ago, I told a story from D.A. Carson's time in college. These days, he is a world-renowned evangelist, theologian, and Bible scholar. But when he was in college, he was just a chemistry student at McGill University in Canada. Already a Christian, uh, Carson partnered with another student to lead evangelistic Bible studies on campus. But uh, though he probably knew more than the average bear, he didn't have all the answers. And so when there would be unbelievers that would come and start asking questions and he had no idea what the answer was, him and his friend would make an arrangement to go and visit another student there named Dave Ward. And I'll let Carson pick up the story here. He says this, Dave Ward had been converted quite spectacularly as a young man. He was, I suppose, what you might call a rough jewel. He was a slapdash in your face with no tact or pol- and little polish, but he was aggressively evangelistic, powerful in his apologetics, and winningly bold. He allowed people like me to bring people to him every once in a while so that he could answer their questions. Get them there and Dave would sort them out. So it was one night that I brought two from my Bible study down to Dave. He bulldozed his way around the room as he always did. He gave us instant coffee, then turning to the first student asked, why have you come? The student replied, well, you know, I think that university is a great time for finding out different points of view, including different religions. So I've been reading some material on Buddhism. I've got a Hindu friend I want to question, and I should also study some Islam. Uh, When this Bible study started, I thought I would get to know a little more about Christianity. That's why I've come. Dave looked at him for a few moments, then said, Sorry, I don't have time for you. I beg your pardon, the student said. Look, Dave replied, I'll loan you some books on world religions. I can show you how I understand Christianity to fit into all this and why I think biblical Christianity is true. But you're just playing around. You're the dilettante. You don't really care about these things. You're just goofing off. I'm a graduate student myself and I don't have time. I do not have the hours at my disposal to engage in endless discussions with people who are just playing around. He looked at the second student. Why did you come? A little more intimidating question this time around. The student said, I come from a home that you people call liberal. We go to the United Church and we don't believe in things like the literal resurrection. I mean, give me a break. The deity of Christ, that's a bit much. But my home is a good home. My parents love my sister and me. We are a really close family. We worship God. We do good in the community. What do you think you've got that we don't have? For what seemed like two or three minutes, Dave looked at him. Then he simply said, watch me. As it happened, this student's name was also Dave, and this Dave said, I beg your pardon? Dave Ward repeated what he had just said, then expanded, watch me. I've got an extra bed, move in with me, be my guest, I'll pay for the food. You go to your classes, do whatever you have to do, but watch me. Watch me when I get up, when I interact with people, what I say, what moves me, what I live for, what I want in life. You watch me for the rest of the semester, and then you tell me at the end of it whether or not there's a difference. This Dave did not take up Dave Ward on the offer literally, but he did begin to watch him and to meet with him, and the Lord drew him. Today, he is serving as a medical missionary. Now, Carson goes on from that story to make this comment. You who are older should be looking out for younger people and saying, in effect, watch me. Come, I'll show you how to have family devotions. Come, I'll show you how to do Bible study. Come on, let me take you through some of the fundamentals of the faith. Come, I'll show you how to pray. Let me show you how to be a Christian husband and father or wife and mother. At a certain point in life, that older mentor should be saying things like this. Let me show you how to die. Watch me. My point is, an essential part of discipleship is not just reading a book or taking a class. It's inviting someone into your life. 
That means being with them, spending time with them. It means giving up privacy, letting them see the good and the bad that they might learn from a real world example of what it means to be a Christian. This is the pattern of intimacy that Jesus established in disciple making and one that we must be willing to pick up on and implement today. Jesus shows us the the intimacy of discipleship, but notice he also shows us the intentionality of discipleship. The intentionality of discipleship. If you're younger and taking notes, just look, tap the adult on the shoulder next to you and they'll tell you how to inspell intentionality. Notice that when Jesus calls these men, there is a specific intention. They are being called to repent and believe in the gospel for salvation, but there is more than that too. These men are putting their faith in Jesus for salvation as his disciples. Now again, let me be clear. The point is not they will be saved because they are disciples. No, the point is, like everyone else, they are saved by the gracious call of God through faith in Christ, and it's not because of any work that they do. But in answering that call, in hearing God's invitation to turn from their sins and towards Him in faith through His Son, Jesus Christ, for salvation, they are not merely being saved. The sphere or the realm of this new relationship they are trusting God for involves their discipleship to Jesus. And as his disciples, Jesus intends for them to serve. So when Jesus approaches these men, Mark tells us that they were casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And it's a wonderful setup for a play on words. Jesus goes on to say, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Now in this context, that means that they will become fishers of men in the sense they will be trained to preach the gospel just like Jesus was preaching it. He will show them, this is the message that you heard and believed, and I'm going to train you how to go out and preach that same message. He was offering salvation to sinners, and they will do the same. And though part of that training came from being with Jesus, we just saw, having this intimate relationship with him, that wasn't the only way that they came to be trained. Notice he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Jesus is not saying this may or may not happen. There's a chance you'll you'll go on to do something great. Jesus is saying, this is my intention with you. I am specifically gathering you to myself and investing in you that I might equip and train you to be the disciples that I want you to be. Now thinking about this principle, it's not hard to pull back from Jesus and his disciples and think about the larger work of discipleship that we're called to be a part of today. Though these men had a unique role as apostles, their experience as disciples remains the same for us. All of us have a basic ministry of man fishing, as it were of sharing the gospel in order to make disciples of Christ. And that ministry will look different from person to person. It might be open and obvious, like standing behind this pulpit, or it might be quiet and unassuming, yet no less effective, like simply reading the gospel of John with someone one-on-one, that they come to faith in Christ. It could be a dozen other things in between, but in the end, it's all disciple-making. If, if its aim aligns with what Paul says in Colossians 1, that you are seeking to present everyone mature in Christ. So this morning, though, we're thinking specifically about the training component of disciple-making. Remember, there is evangelism, 
taking sinners and bringing them into Christ's kingdom as his disciples, then training them to be disciples, as Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28, teaching them to obey all the things that I have commanded. We are encouraging their faith. And then we are also equipping them, training them, so that they can reproduce what was done in their life and beyond. So as we think about that specifically, we want to think about Jesus as a model, what he did and what the implications are for us today. Specifically, I think we should keep in mind at least three principles. First, in the process of equipping, we need to remember that we are, we are imparting specific skills. We are imparting specific skills. Most of you know about the preaching boot camp that we had here a couple of years ago. Uh, in preparation for a mission trip to the Philippines, uh, our partners there said, uh, we're going to have the pastor preach, and then we're going to have the other two guys preach sermons as well. Well, there was a little problem with that. They'd never preached sermon before. So do you just say, ah, eh, you'll be fine. Just figure it out. That's probably not a good idea. That's what happened with me, and it didn't go very well. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just be honest. The only people that have any record of uh, my first sermon are my parents, on an old videotape, and I long for the day when they go to glory so I can burn that tape, okay? Uh, it, was, it was not good, and it was because no one told me how to preach. There's assume. You, you sit under it all your life, you're going to figure it out. Not so much. It's a lot more involved than that. So we had this preaching boot camp. Now, all three of us needed to mature in our faith. We needed encouragement. That's the ongoing need of every disciple. But that wasn't the explicit point of the boot camp. We had personal devotions. We had family devotions. We had community group Bible study for that. In that time, it was my specific aim to take what I had learned from studying and practicing the ministry of preaching for a little over 10 years and impart the essentials of that in about 10 weeks. Uh, not necessarily going to create the next Spurgeon, but I'm going to give them all the tools they needed to go from text to the, to the, to the sermon both the theology of preaching as well as the practicalities of preaching. In other words, there was an intentional aim to train and equip with certain ministry skills. Now, some of you here have ministry skills that you've honed over time. You may not think of them like ministry skills because, well, we could be talking about preaching. We could also just be talking about sharing your faith in an easy manner, in, in, in a very natural way. It might be how to lead a Bible study with someone, or it could be something like caring for those that are stuck at home because of illness or age. There's a certain, there's a certain uh, cluster of skills involved in discipling people like that as well. Whatever skills you might have, uh, my encouragement to you this morning is don't be a cul-de-sac. Don't just be a place where God, God invests and others have invested and it just stays with you. Find an individual, and if it is just one person of like gender, there's some wisdom there, or if it's a small group of people, invest in them. Pour your life into them. Impart the skills that you've had imparted to you towards another generation. Form an intimate, intentional disciple-making relationship with them, aiming to help them mature in Christ by equipping them for greater ministry. And like Jesus, don't wait for someone to come up and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, I've noticed you're really good at this. Will you train me to do the same? Take the initiative. Find someone that you think has uh, the really basic level requirements, which is usually a pulse, and say, I want to train you to do ministry. Come alongside me, let me help you, and then do it. Don't just talk about it. Don't just sit in the class and talk about it. Actually do it. Do ministry and bring them along. Let them minister aside you. Give them feedback. 
The point is, take the initiative to impart specific skills. But probably many more of you will not be the ones doing the training. Rather, you should expect to be trained. You should expect to be trained. By definition, not everyone is going to start off immediately uh, training people. Uh, Many of us are going to be on the side of being equipped. That means sitting here right Sitting right here today, in your mind, you need to make a decision that says, I'm going to honor Christ's plan for his people. I'm going to be ready and willing for someone to equip me for greater effectiveness in disciple making. Now, I just told the people who have training to seek you out, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't do the same thing, okay? Hopefully, if you're seeking and they're seeking, you're going to find each other in the hallways at church, all right? Understand, though, that... Even now, we're offering some classes on Sunday mornings. We're offering some, uh, right now, some kind of uh, some foundational thoughts about disciple making that we're going to give you some practical tools. And all that's good or else we wouldn't be offering it. It's helpful or else we wouldn't do it. But it's also not enough. Get together with someone and actually put these things into practice. Let them give you feedback and mentor you and help you. In all of this, we need to make sure that we remember the essentials. We need to remember the essentials. All Christian disciple-making involves two basic elements, prayer and the Word of God. You might be doing other kinds of ministry to show love and affection for someone, but if you are not prayerfully speaking God's Word into someone's life, you're not engaged in disciple-making. Not saying it's wrong, but it's not disciple-making. Because prayerfully speaking God's Word from one person to another is how individuals come to have faith in Christ come to be built up and matured in that faith, and come to be trained for greater, greater ministry for Christ. So as one of my friends is fond of saying, don't get off in the weeds. Make sure that your training that either you're giving or receiving is tied to the heart of disciple making. That is, prayerfully speaking God's word in the lives of others. Many years ago, a former church of mine, or at least that, a church that I attended, hired a new youth minister. And uh, many, many people loved this man because under his leadership, there were tons of young people moving to the baptistry. I think one year there were something like 65 teenagers that were baptized at that church. But there was a problem. The youth group never got any bigger. The year we had whatever it was, 50, 60, whatever it was, I think the youth group number, actually Sunday school class numbers only went up by two or three. See, the problem was he was passionate about sharing Christ. He was passionate about doing evangelism, but he had no clue what it meant to make a disciple. So in in his mind, he preached Christ, he got them wet, and he was done. He was moving on. And he had no concept of plugging them into a church, of of investing in their lives and teaching them, what does it mean to live for Christ now? How should your life be different? How do you grow in your faith? And so they went away very quickly. In fact, in hindsight, many years later, it's been very worrisome to me that perhaps like Jesus' parable, those were not true converts, but rather seeds that sprouted quickly, but would go on to die away because of tribulation and the cares of the world. In hindsight, it was like someone giving birth to a baby. And in the first hours, there was joy and tears and pictures and phone calls. But then the parents just walked away and left the baby to fend for itself. Loved ones, we're called to something much better than that. 
We are called not just to make converts, but to make disciples. The very nature of the church is a people gathered together in committed covenant community to one another. We are meant to be concerned for one another's faith, to direct command from the New Testament, encourage, comfort, rebuke, counsel, bear with, forgive, and serve one another as Christ's disciples. And so as we think about these things, as we think about this process of discipleship, we want to remember what Christ has for us, what he expects of us, what he encourages us and empowers us to do, to build up one another, spurring one another on toward greater maturity in him. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the calling that we have to be your disciples. Father, we're thankful that you have, in Paul's words, not chosen the wise or the powerful or the most obvious people in the world to be your disciples. You have chosen just everyday folks like us. And yet, Father, because you've given us your spirit, you have given us wisdom. You have given us spiritual power. You've given us the ability to take gospel truth and bring it into the lives of others that they might come to know your son and experience life and joy and freedom in him. Father, we pray that all of us would not be afraid, we would not be hesitant, that we would not be selfish. So, Father, we would see the clear will that you have for our life from the Gospels to the end of the New Testament is to not only be a disciple but to make disciples. And Father, help us to figure out what we can do. Help us to figure out, Father, how we can best encourage one another and whether or not we need to be trained and equipped to do things like evangelism, like sharing our faith or, or leading a Bible study or doing something more involved. Father, give us the wisdom and the ability to know. Give us grace to live the way you've called us to be, to either train or be trained to serve the risen Christ. We ask these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.